God is good, huh? Man. We're about to have some church. Hey, listen, we're in this series called The Book of Acts to the Ends of the Earth. And if you've been tracking with us, we've talked about the the birth of the church and, um, and how, man, God poured out his Holy Spirit. And there was a promise that Jesus made. He said, I want you to wait here. But then, but then there's going to be this moment when the Spirit pours out. And, and man, he's going to impact this city, Jerusalem. And then you're going to come to a point where you're going to have to go beyond this place. And, and you're going to go into all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth with the gospel and with the good news. And, and so we've been talking about that. We get to this pivotal moment today. And um, so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to join me in Acts chapter 6. We get to this moment where uh, persecution results in the death of a young man named Stephen. This young man named Stephen, and he, he's the first martyr for the cause of Christ in history. Just killed for his faith, yet, yet through his unwavering commitment to God, to Jesus, to the cause of Christ and his bold witness, Stephen became a catalyst for growth and transformation in the early church. He inspired others to be more courageous in their own witness and helped to build the foundations of this global wave of hope in the name of Jesus we're still part of today. That Stephen was pivotal in that, and his example also demonstrated that anyone, anyone, anywhere, even here, can, can be used by God to advance his kingdom. That anyone, regardless of title or rank or status, can have significant impact when they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so if you're there with me in Acts chapter 6. It is a bit of a heavy story. It's a bit of this awe-inspiring story because, again, Stephen, spoiler alert, does go on to be killed for the cause of Christ. And so we're going to pick this story up, Acts chapter 6. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so I want to pause there for just a moment. Here's what's going on. You've got these two groups of Jews, okay? And you've got the Grecian Jews. These are Greek-speaking Jews. And then you've got these, um, these Hebraic Jews who were from Palestine. And so um, the Greek-speaking Jews are upset because their widows are not being cared for. They, they feel like there's there's like this disservice that's taking place. And so advocates who, who are like, hey, this is not okay, they speak up and they're like, man, we want to make sure they're getting, they're getting fed too. And, and so they bring this up. And again, the church is growing, right? Already a couple of sermons have, have been preached by Peter and, and thousands of people are, are, are coming into this movement. And so we see that there's this tension because like there's this distribution of food. People are bringing resources, right? And they're giving it out to people, to the poor, and some people are getting overlooked. Okay, and so verse 2, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I want you to note that, 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 that Peter and the apostles, they say, hey, listen, all this movement is going, and man, we're excited about what God is up to, and so we, we don't want to neglect the ministry of the word of God, the preaching and teaching of the word to wait on tables. 
Then verse 3, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so right here, we've got the very first org chart show up in the church history. They get to this point and they see that, hey, we've, we've outgrown the current structure of just the 12. And so we, we need some other people. And so they, they propose, hey, let's get some men. Let's get seven guys. And once you look across like all the thousands of people, I want you to, to kind of select and they give some qualifications. And, and, and this proposal, it pleases the group. And so they choose seven men to carry out these administrative tasks. And among them, Stephen. Stephen, right? And he's known to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then also a guy named Philip. And we're going to talk about him in a few weeks. He's a key player in the book of Acts as well. And, and then five others who are selected and they're prayed over and they're affirmed as, as really the first deacons, the first servant leaders in the early church. And so we have to see this, that of, of the thousands of people who made up the church, Stephen was among the very first chosen in a leadership role. That's significant. That's significant in his task significant as well. It was to essentially develop and institute a general welfare system with an emphasis on food distribution and to ensure specifically that Greek-speaking widows were being cared and fed, right? And, and I mean, tremendous responsibility, but, but like in the big picture, it's one that the current 12 apostles, they described as waiting on tables. But as it turned out, Stephen did far more than just administer charity. He did far more than hand out lunchables. God gave him the power to do miracles and to speak convincingly to other Greek-speaking Jews. And Stephen would go on to serve as a pivotal player in the expansion of the gospels. His life, his witness, and his death would also serve as noble example for all believers. And so let's look at this. Because even though his position was waiting tables... Stephen's purpose was gospel expansion. Okay, and, and we can't miss this because the church leaders, they looked among all of these people and they looked at Stephen and they said, they said, hey, we'll entrust you with oversight of the bread, right? But, but watch this, as one who had tasted and experienced the bread of life himself in Christ, Stephen, like Panera, offered up a take too. Like, yes, he was faithful in filling bellies, but he was faithful to fill souls as well. Like, he, yes, he was administering bread, but he was also pointing people to the bread of life in Jesus. And he was using his position to do so. And he didn't get called up in the rank or the title, but he was faithful with his calling. And so for us, when we begin to see that our aptitude for impact is not bound by the position we hold, we can then humbly serve and chase down opportunities to be and share good news right where we are right where we are. You see, Stephen didn't get his value from his title. And I think that's wildly relevant for us because when we associate our worth with our work, get this, titles define our value instead of God. Like when we associate, when we connect and we correlate that our worth is connected to our work or our job or our position or where we find our name on an org chart somewhere, when we say that is where my worth comes from, then that is going to define your value instead of God. And, and, and you've understand this. You, you've probably seen this. And you've experienced it. Like if I could just get that promotion, then I'd be positioned for influence. 
If I could just have that role or that job or that life or that relationship, then I can make an impact and be content and be respected. I mean, how many of us fill our calendars with appointments that we hope will fulfill our lives, right? Because we think if we're busy, then we're important. And as Christians, we have a way of blurring these lines, don't we? Because we can get so caught up in like Christian activity and, and we have to understand that God is calling us toward obedience to him, not into busyness for him. He wants us to be obedient and to chase hard after him. We see Stephen do this. So let me ask, what would it look like for you to use your unique skill set and the unique position God has put you in to spread and share the gospel? What would it look like for you in the circle you find yourself with the influence you already have? Not what you hope to attain one day, but, but what would it look like for you to use your unique position and the unique circle and the unique relationships you have to share good news? Or simply put, will you do your chores for the cause of Christ? And chores is this key word because chores are, are those small, sometimes menial tasks we can so easily overlook, Right? You know what I'm talking about? But they're so necessary. And Jesus understood this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so again, regardless of your title, will you do your chores for the cause of Christ? Like regardless of the position you hold. And I, wanna, I was thinking, some of you are like, man, I feel like, I feel like some of those messages are for me because sometimes we're actually thinking about you. And so in this moment, I want to just like cover the gamut, like whether you're a pastor, a past addict, you passed the bar or you barely passed eighth grade, God has purpose for you. Amen. All right, whether you have a microphone and you stand on a stage, whether you use a track phone or you answer phones for a living, God has a purpose for you. Man, whether you run a company, you run marathons or you run errands. God's got a purpose for you. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-late employee, or a stable hand on a farm, whether you write prescriptions, you write poetry, you write contracts, or you teach preschoolers to write their ABCs, whether you coach on the ball field, you fight in battlefields, or you serve in the medical field, whether you deliver treadmills, or you cook prepared meals, or you commute over to Clay's Mill, whether you're tired after work or you're retired from work, will you do your chores for the cause of Christ? Trusting that no matter your job description, God assigns your work. You know, when I was in elementary school, I went to Fickwood Elementary on the east side of Atlanta, and um, there was a, a janitor there named Howard. And Howard's a big man. He's probably 6'2", two, 2 plus, and he always had cool shoes on. And I remember every single day I would, I would go and I would drop off my, my, my plate um, with the lunch ladies and I'd throw my, my milk carton away and Howard would be standing on this like brick wall that had a big mural of the United States on it. Howard would be leaning on that wall, propped up like this, and he'd have a yellow mop bucket and a mop in his hand. And he'd have the biggest smile on his face. And I remember that every day I'd drop my stuff off and I'd walk by and Howard would fist bump or high five or do some secret handshake with every single kid who walked by. And, and here's the thing, that Howard became so known for his words of encouragement and his inspiration that, that through his interactions with kids, he became this source of hope and his influence went way further than his job description. And Howard was a bright light 
in a dark place because he lived for something that mattered more. He lived for a story that was greater than his, and that's sort of like Stephen. How though his role was initially focused on administrative tasks, he quickly became known for his faith and his wisdom and miracles. You see, his faithfulness with what he was entrusted with led to considerably greater opportunities of influence. He was faithful in the small things, and, and that's where we find him. Luke continues the story. We pick back up. He's faithfully serving, waiting tables, right? And he's doing this to the joy of the Lord. And, and, and Luke continues the narrative, and he gives a summary statement. You'll see these throughout the book of Acts. Where it kind of gives like a, you know, like, hey, here's the, a vital sign. Here's how the church is going. Continues this in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem, notice that, where they're still at, in Jerusalem, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so they're continuing to experience this exponential growth. This new delegation of leadership enhanced their opportunity, okay? And so the structure was working. They were caring for and they're growing and they're meeting the needs of the people. And the gospel is being shared and people are coming to faith in Jerusalem. And all was good until it wasn't. And that's when things got real. And I love the way that the message translation, Eugene Patterson, he summarizes this, verses 8 through 10. It says, Stephen, brimming with God's grace and energy, was doing wonderful things among the people, unmistakable signs that God was among them. It, it sort of describes Stephen as this outgoing, gregarious socialite, right? I bet he did make a great waiter, right? Like, like I bet he was. And you know, you know when you interact with a great waiter, like they just got it. They got the X factor. That was Stephen. But because I can't imagine Stephen like lording over the tables as if like, I am the great gift giver of bread. I will, I will give you what you need. No, no, I imagine Stephen. Stephen being so personable, likely gets down and, and, he, and he looks people in the face. I imagine Stephen being so much like another waiter at another table when Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down and he served those he loved, even knowing that some of those that, that were right there were going to bail on him when he would need them the most. I imagine Stephen learned from, from that waiter because he, he seemed to just have this, this natural way of building bridges. And that Stephen would serve him with joy, and it continues. But, but then some men from the meeting place whose membership was made up of freed slaves, Syrians, Alexandrians, and some others from Cilicia and Asia went up against him trying to argue him down. But they were no match for his wisdom and spirit when he spoke. You know, the NIV simply says that opposition arose. So he's serving faithfully in the small things, regardless of title, and he's being faithful to that. And he finds himself in, in these circles of influence and through a relationship. Now he's sharing the gospel and people are opposing it. And they ask questions and they try to undercut him, but, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit and, and God is speaking like, through, like he's a mouthpiece and they're no, they're no match for him. And so they get to this point, and, and all of these devout Mosaic law leaders, they are intimidated. They're intimidated because, like, this is spreading. We, you know, it was Jesus, okay, and, and then, you know, we took care of him. And then now, now it was Peter, and it's Andrew, and, and they're starting to see this. It's John, and now Stephen. So it's growing. And they're intimidated by this, so much so that they fabricate false accusations of blasphemy against Stephen. And the last few verses of chapter 6 detail how they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was like the national Jewish Supreme Court. 
And they pull him out and they put him on trial. And then Acts chapter 7 begins with this question from the high priest, the chief justice. He said, hey, in light of all these accusations, in light of you being a blasphemer, like, like, in, in light of all this, it, they're saying that you're undercutting the Mosaic law. They're saying you're speaking against the temple, against God. And he asked this question, are these charges true? That was the mistake to allow him to answer. Because this question served as an invitation and it opened a door for Stephen to utterly and completely dismantle his accusers. I mean, this is something that the finest defense attorneys aspire to. And for the next 50 verses, Stephen puts on a masterclass in Jewish history and oratory excellence and debate. He articulates Israel's rich history by way of storytelling And he starts at the very beginning of the Old Testament with Abraham, and he weaves the theme of God's redemption all throughout his presentation. But he does so with an unexpected twist at the end. And while I don't have time to completely unpack the entire speech in chapter 7, I encourage you, it's worth your time to study it. But essentially, in this moment, these religious leaders are found listening to a story they knew by heart. It was their story, but as such... They had always assumed and written themselves in as protagonists, as the good guys. And they were like, yeah, sure, there were times in our past where our ancestors, they missed the mark. But us? Nah, we got this. We're on the right side of history. Like, we got it going now. We've got it together. Yet throughout Stephen's retelling, instead of presenting Israel's history as a story of salvation, Stephen flips the script and reveals it as a story of rebellion, revealing that these Jewish leaders standing before him who are accusing him of blasphemy. He he flips this and he says, you are just like your ancestors. They were still rebelling against God's plan. And Stephen is communicating that. and And he says, he says, listen, you are not aligned with Abraham or with Moses or with David or Solomon and the prophets. Instead, Instead, you have found yourself standing with Joseph's brothers who betrayed and sold him into slavery. You are with the Israelites who rejected Moses and the law and helped Aaron build and worship the golden calf. See, Stephen isn't just suggesting that this esteemed group of Jewish figureheads are wrong. He's telling the whole assembly to their faces. Essentially, Stephen recounts to them their own story, but he concludes that they ultimately misunderstood because they missed Jesus. And Dr. Bo Hughes, he puts it this way, he says, Stephen's defense is this, because I understand Jesus, I understand your story better than you do. And he says, because I understand Jesus, I understand your story better than you do. And so at his trial, Stephen presents his case loud and clear, and he boldly proclaims that I am living in accord with God and you are not. And friends, that's the question we must answer too. Will you live for Jesus? Because here's the reality. As Micah mentioned, there are, and we're aware of this, but there are Christians all around the world who must resolve daily if they are willing to die for Jesus. And we'll talk more about that next week and even carve out time to pray for the persecuted church. But unless you are called to a mission field with that level of danger, it is unlikely that you'll ever have to die for Jesus. I mean, praise God, we we live in this country. 
where we do have the freedom together and assemble and lift high the name of Jesus. And so it's unlikely you'll ever have to die for Jesus. And so while I would like to think, hey, if that ever came, like I would, I would like to think that I would, but here's the reality. I feel it'd be disingenuous for me to answer that question emphatically because that's not my reality. And, and so since it's rare that you'll ever have to answer the question, if you'll die for Jesus, every single one of us must answer this question, will you live for Jesus? Or in other words, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? You know how you can tell? Where do you find your value? What are you most proud of? How about this? In the first few minutes of meeting someone, what's the one thing they're sure to find out about you? What's that thing that's so central and vital to who you are that it overflows and it splashes onto other people around you? What dominates your thoughts? What do you daydream about? What defines your story? What are you giving your life to? You know, my youngest of three, five-year-old Beckett, um, he, he goes on these, like, question trends is what I call them, okay? And some of you know that you're at that age and just the questions keep coming, right? And he's moved beyond just the why questions. But a couple years ago, he started asking two questions before bedtime. I'd lay him down and we'd, we'd pray, and, um, and, and then he would ask two questions. He said, Dad, Dad, what are your three favorite animals? And what are your three favorite colors? And so I answer those questions every single night. And so I lay him down. I know these questions are coming, and so I've got the answers ready. And so we had that conversation. But uh, about a month ago, Beckett kind of, he latched onto some other questions. I don't know where um, he, he found these questions initially, but he asked these questions to me. And, um, and so even yesterday, uh, we were in the garage, and Beckett asked these questions to me. The first one is this, Dad, if you had one day to live, what would you do? And as I try to honor the question, right, and dignify my five-year-old with an answer in, in the most distilled way possible, I try to think about that. And immediately, it's not stuff, it's people. I want to be with people. I tell them, man, we would leave right now. We'd go check your sister and brother out of school, and we would all be together, me and your mom, and like our whole family, right? And we, would, we, we would do something. We'd probably get some good food like Joella's. I don't know, but we, we would do something. Like if we have one day. If we have one day to live, and I try to think about that. If I have one day, what would I do? And, and, and some, of, some of the things, I immediately see where my priorities are because that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be with. If I have one day to live. But then he continues the question. He says, but Deb, what if you had one week to live? And I think about this and how really it, it's very similar, but the circle expands. Like there's other people I'd want to see. There might be like some other things I'd want to do. Like if I had one week, it's like, okay, how far could we get? Would I really want to go there? I don't know. And it might some other meals, some other people, that kind of thing. But, but, but essentially the values are still there. It's all the same. There is this urgency. It's like, oh my gosh, like trying to think through that. And he's like, you just had one week, dad, what would you do? And so try to answer that. Try to answer that. And then, and then he asks, he says, but dad, what if you had one gazillion times a thousand days left? And here's the reality. Here's what I've seen. Is that the more perceived time I have, the less intentional I am with it. Which is sad, really, because we don't know. We don't know if it's one day. 
We don't know if it's one week. I don't know if it's one gazillion times a thousand days. One day in heaven, it will be. But I don't know with my feet on earth. I don't know how many days or weeks or multiples of that that I have left. And so, so it's sad to me because when I think that I've got a lot of time, then I'm not very intentional with it. And friends, let me tell you with as much love and sincerity as possible that the story you're living for is incomplete, warped, and wrong if Jesus is not at the center of it. That the story you're living for falls short of what God has called you for if Jesus is not at the center of it. And so let's not wait for critical diagnoses with a ticking timestamp to live for what matters most. That was Stephen's message to his audience in Acts chapter 7, and it's our message today, that if Jesus is not at the center of your story, then you're living a lesser life that leads to no life at all. And then Stephen concludes his defense, starting with verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And listen, I know these are harsh words, but, but knowing some of Stephen's character and his compassion, I, I feel like it's more of a plea. He's not, he's not like trying to like lay the hammer and he's not trying to like throw out some last ditch insults. No, he's like pleading with them. He's like, you guys, you're still missing it, but it's not too late. Like, like, like you're doing the same things that your, your ancestors did and they were, they, they were missing the mark completely and you found yourself there. You're just like your fathers. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. He continues, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. He said, guys, you killed Jesus. He came, he was the Messiah you've been hoping for and waiting for, and he came and he loved people and he healed people and he gave his life as a ransom for many, but you killed him. You killed him. And he's like pleading with them. He says, you even received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He's urging them to repent. He's urging them to come back. He's saying, guys, it's not too late. Quit resisting don't be stiff-necked. But it was too late. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And friends, this is the only moment recorded in Scripture where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And Luke doesn't tell us why. We don't know for sure if he even knew. And scholars have all kinds of ideas as to why Jesus was standing. Perhaps it was a display of solidarity that Jesus stands with those who stand with him. Perhaps it was to welcome Stephen home as a good shepherd would do. Perhaps Jesus stood as the advocate that he is at the right hand of the judge. Regardless, this beautiful picture reminds me that though we may suffer through the night, joy comes in the morning. And when you stand firm in Christ, though your stance may very well lead to being beaten and crushed, torn down, humiliated, threatened, and persecuted, it will also lead to Jesus rising up with both righteous anger and heart-wrenching delight, 
standing at the right hand of God with all power and authority as if to say, I am with you through this. Keep going, keep holding on my good and faithful servant. I'm standing with him for you at the right hand of my father. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And so the onslaught begins. The mob attack, the ruthless murder, the abuse of authority, innocent blood starting to pour out and cries of the one succumbing to his death are ringing loud. And then Luke drops in a side note that will ultimately aid in the shifting trajectory of history and the church. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That over over here, on, on, on the side of where the stones are being thrown... There stands a young man, a young Pharisee who's watching this and giving approval to it. He's standing there like a coat rack. No, he doesn't have stones in his hands, but he has the blood of the first martyr on his hands. He's approving what's going on and Luke drops that in and we kind of see, we can foreshadow this is what's going to happen. But but we see that Saul was there and while they were stoning him, get this, we flash back to this moment. So Saul is over there and he's watching this and he's a witness to this. But in this moment, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell Asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And so, Stephen, the first martyr for the cause of Christ, has given up his spirit. He's the first in a long line of God's messengers killed for preaching the name of Jesus. Even today, people. Or having to decide, will I die for my faith? And it's happening. Will you live for your faith? Will you live for Jesus? But to deny the parallel between the final moments of Stephen's and Jesus' death would be to miss out on what mattered most to these men. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Some of the final words of Jesus on the cross, but the difference here, the subtle difference is that, is that Stephen is committing his spirit to Lord Jesus, testifying the deity of Christ and the bold exclamation of his faith in the claim of our Messiah, that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So in his dying words, that's what Stephen is testifying to, and and that Jesus, he died to save us in spite of our stiff-necked resistance and to free us from the misshaped stories that we turn to. And then one last merciful, love-driven plea of forgiveness on behalf of his enemies. Listen to these words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As rocks are beginning to crush his body, Stephen is calling out forgiveness for the stone throwers, 
for his enemies. And it reminds us of these words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. That Jesus looked at us with all this compassion, like a shepherd looking at a sheep without this owner is gonna care for them. He says, Father, forgive them. And we step back and we see how the death of Stephen, it serves not just as this literary transition in the book of Acts, but as this launch pad for the gospel to spread. You see, with Stephen's death, Luke turns the page on the story of the Jerusalem church. Because it's now time for the good news to radiate out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But Luke breaks through the turn just long enough to foreshadow who will eventually become the central character in his book, that Saul was there. Saul was there. That day, giving approval to his death, providing witness and oversight to murder. His hands covered in martyred blood. And while Saul would continue savagely persecuting the church for some time, you better believe that a small seed was planted deep in his soul as he watched and listened to Stephen's dying testimony, not realizing that that he himself would become the very recipient of the grace that Stephen was begging for God to lavish out on his enemies. And we'll pick up that part of the story in the coming weeks, but I wanna leave us with this, that we too can remain faithful in the face of adversity by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting in the love of God. That Stephen's passion for sharing the truth and his unwavering commitment to his faith serve as an inspiration to us all. So let us strive to follow in his footsteps, boldly proclaiming, the good news and remaining steadfast in our faith, no matter the circumstances, not allowing title or position to impede our impact, but trusting that God can uniquely use us where he's uniquely placed us. And so what's that look like for you? For you to live for Jesus, to do your chores for the cause of Christ. What's that look like for you? to leverage your position and relationships, whatever they are, to share the gospel. Who do you need to share Jesus with? Who needs to make the decision to live for Jesus? And so listen, we're gonna close with this time to respond and um, we're gonna do something a little bit different. That seems to happen a lot when I'm preaching. But but here's the thing, because I grew up in, uh, I grew up in the church and there were many, many times I remember sitting, I was sitting in pews and I would, I would be, I would be listening to somebody preach the word of God and, uh, and they would come to this time of of an invitation, but, but I, I always struggled with it because because it always felt so secretive. It felt stealthy. It was always like, and I'm not knocking, it's just the reality that I grew up in. It was like, I want every head bowed and every eye closed. And then I want you very, you know, quietly just slip your hand up. And Listen, that's not the kind of faith we're called to. We're called to stand for truth and present it in love. And listen, so, so I want to ask a question. And, and I did this several years ago, and there was another pastor, and he was like, he was like hey, man, if you, if you do like a public invitation 
and nobody responds, doesn't it feel like a letdown? No, because I was never holding anybody up. I, 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 I'm just planting seeds. That's all we're doing, and, but, but I, I wanna do this. I wanna ask this question. I know like uh, we didn't plan this and Mike is rolling with us and this kind of thing, but, but here's what I wanna do. I just wanna ask, but I wanna be very, very clear. We're gonna do two different, two different uh, questions here. And this first one, if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, but you're, you're saying, you know what? I want to live for Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to, to be bold. I, I want to stand with Jesus. I don't have all the questions. Neither do I. Neither does anybody. We're all chasing Jesus. And, and if that's you, you're like, hey, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus. But you know what? It's, it's, not, it's not that like I'll do that someday. Someday is today. Because listen, you might, you might just have one day. You might have a week. You, you, you might have one gazillion times a thousand days and I hope that you use those to amplify the cause of Christ. But today, listen, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you wanna say, you know what, today I'm gonna to give my life to Christ and I'm gonna stand. So here's what we're gonna say with every eye open and every head up, because this is a family that celebrates when prodigals come home. I wanna just ask if that's you. If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus right now, I want you to be bold and right where you're at, I want you to stand up. In just a moment, in just a moment, if you stood up, man, I want to invite you down front. I want to talk with you. We got other folks who are going to connect with you. We're going to walk through these next steps, what this looks like. And we're going to chase Jesus hard and fast together. Let's go. Um, and listen, the, the second question is this. Will you live for Jesus? Like, hey, you made a decision to follow him. Yeah. Jesus says daily you take up your cross and you follow me. And so I want to ask you, if, if you will live for Jesus, you say, hey, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to strive to be faithful with Jesus. I'm going to strive to share the gospel with others. I'm just going to strive to, to, to draw near and trust the promise that he'll draw near to me. If that's you, if you're going to say, yes, I will live for Jesus. I'm going to live for Jesus. If that's you, you've made a decision to follow, but you're saying, yes, Jesus I'm taking up my cross daily. I'm going to follow you today. If that's you, will you live for Jesus? I want to encourage you, stand up. Hallelujah. Friends, listen, we have an invitation to be a part of an eternal story. There are broken people in our lives that we've been uniquely positioned to impact for the kingdom of God. 
Hey, we're going to sing this song. Some of these lyrics are familiar to you. I mean, I'm just going to ask if the Holy Spirit's working and you want to talk some more. Maybe there's something you need to come and lay down. You need to come and say, hey, listen, I've been holding this above the name of Jesus no longer. I want to invite you to come. we got a team of, of folks who are going to be praying with you and for you. Maybe you need to just grab your family and say, you know what? Man, we haven't been like, we haven't been prioritizing this, but I want to come together. And, and, and maybe I'm talking to some dads in the room. I'm talking to myself. I'm saying, I, I need to be a better leader. But it's not about striving to be better. It's about submitting to the one who already is. And so listen, we're going to have this time to respond. Um, hey, and if you made that decision to follow Jesus, whether you stood up there, you're like, man, I was thinking of standing, but I'm going to stand out. Let's go, baby. Let's stand. Hey, listen, if that was you, I want you to come forward. We're going to pray with you and talk with you and, and kind of move forward on that. But if anybody, if anybody has something you need to unpack, don't leave this place without leaving it at the foot of the cross. Father, we are so grateful for how faithful you are. I'm so grateful that you are at work. God, I'm grateful that, that there's a generation of college students who said we're going to be a Jesus generation. We're going to seek the Lord. We're going to give our lives. We're going to say yes to living for Jesus. And God, I thank you for a body of Christ. I thank you for a group of people. I thank you for a church who says yes, Lord. We're going to walk in your ways and your laws, as the prophet Isaiah writes, that your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts that it's all and only forever about Jesus. May you be magnified and glorified. And Father, we celebrate with all heaven new life if, as people step into the eternal story through faith in Jesus. God, we love you. We're grateful for you. We pray all these things in your son's name.